The views and opinions expressed on the Poor Ass Podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of BME Recovery Content Productions. Any content provided by our guests are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. And on that note, enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I have a new website. Go to www.poraspodcast.com for episodes. That's www.poraspodcast.com. So if you hear vcomedy.com, that is the old website. Go to www.poraspodcast.com for episodes and enjoy the show thanks for listening thanks for supporting bye welcome to poor ass podcast the show that talks about tough shit on a budget with your host veronica porus Welcome, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Poor Ass Podcast, the podcast where we talk about tough shit on a budget and can we live a sustainable life while on a budget. Today's guest is Chloe Payne. She is a musician from Portland. She is an accomplished actor, singer, and writer. She obtained her BA in musical theater performance from Columbia College, Chicago. She has also trained professionally with the Seattle Children's Theater and the historic Second City Improv Theater in Chicago. With over 10 years of theatrical credits, she has been featured on stages in Seattle, Chicago, St. Louis, and her adopted hometown of Portland, Oregon. She's also an experienced busker. Chloe has most recently been focusing on music by creating videos for YouTube and commission songwriting projects. So uh, I wanted to get Chloe on the podcast. She was one of the featured artists for the Clinton Street Theater virtual fundraiser, Save the Clinton Street Theater, and uh, we connected she, um, when I interviewed Nathan, Nathan Williams, she, her song was the intro of that episode. And so we, uh, corresponded back in, back and forth and I got to talk to her and I thought she'd be a really good guest for talking about coming out on a budget and, and also check in with her on how she's doing during this pandemic and how did the fundraiser go. So Chloe, how did the fundraiser go? 
<laughs> Thank you for asking. Uh, yeah, that was an incredible opportunity to jump in and try and help out uh, with saving the Clinton Street Theater, such a historic spot here in Portland, the longest running Rocky Horror screenings, I think, in the country. Certainly, like, such a crazy long screening of Rocky Horror and such a cool spot for live performance in, in Portland. Um, the event itself was such a crazy, awesome success. Uh, we originally were going to be doing it uh, the week in September that the state ended up being on fire. So the yeah. powers that be yeah, who were organizing it made uh, such a wise decision and pushed it back a week. And that just made it a lot easier for uh, the local businesses who were participating to still be able to jump in and contribute. And we had a whole live chat going on Facebook the whole time that the songs were playing. And, and Nathan Williams was such, such an exquisite host. He takes um, live improv song requests uh, for certain donations. And he off the cuff did some wonderful song about like being a nihilistic potato and being worried that you're going to be killed and turned into French fries. It, it was a magical, magical night. We raised, uh, during the live stream itself, we raised over uh, $13,000 for the Clinton street, which is incredible. Um, I, absolutely urge anyone who is concerned about saving this historic venue to please visit uh, cstpdx.com to donate directly to continue to support the theater because unfortunately we realized after the event there was some possibility of the hint of a whisper of a violation of community guidelines as far as Facebook is concerned. They ended up actually refunding a lot of the donations that were made uh, to people who participated in the live stream due to something with to do with... Um, possible confusion over whether or not we were technically selling gift cards. There were gift mm. cards that were included as silent auction items. Yeah, it's it's oh, the kind yeah. of thing that the people who organized the event were so awesome and transparent about sharing this information as soon as it came out and explaining why some things might have been seen as, as getting refunded. But the moral of the story, uh, we raised over $13,000, but only about a third of that actually ended up going to the Clinton directly. And so uh, they are certainly just as much in need of, as ever in uh, of support. You know, we're trying to help make sure that they can uh, still survive the pandemic and, uh, and pay their bills while they can't be having people uh, coming and being paying ticket holders. So uh, thank you so much for asking about it. Certainly my, my first and foremost here today was to be able to try to support everyone. If this is your first time hearing about it, please support the Clinton Street Theater. Head to cstpdx.com to make donations directly. And if anyone listening participated in the live stream and made donations leading up to the event, you might not even have noticed the refunds, especially if you're someone like me who, you know, mm -hmm. we're out here living on a budget and I was just making like those little tiny donations, you know, $5 here and $10 there over the course of organizing it. And sometimes those little funds, you may not even notice if those smaller things hit your bank statement back with a refund, right? So if you're one of those folks listening who is like me and like helped out with like smaller donations here and there, like maybe just take a second and make sure the Clinton actually got your money. We would really, really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And I'll definitely uh, put those notes again right. on on the show notes for this episode mm -hmm. and the theater is still accepting donations. If you go to the website, um, donate through the Clinton street theater website, they are still taking donations. Beautiful. Yeah, man, we're going to help them survive this. We're all going to try and get through pandemic together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you for, uh, being part of the, the fundraiser. I got to hear I got to hear your music. I really like it. And how talk about your path. Like how how did music become part of your creative path? Oh, thank you for asking. I it's uh I I 
have struggled a lot in the past with uh, kind of imposter syndrome, actually, as a musician. And it's something that is now feeling a lot more comfortable as something that I can kind of own and really feel proud of as something that I consider to be a, a big part of how I express myself. Because I started really as a singer, first and foremost. I'm, I'm an actor and I grew up doing musical theater. Um, and I, I feel confident as a singer, you know, growing up with musical theater and choir and voice lessons and stuff. And then in my 20s, I picked up just enough basic guitar and ukulele and keyboard to accompany myself as a singer, to accompany myself on basic songs. Uh, and so in the beginning, it was definitely just, you know, you're, you're in between gigs as an actor or, you know, the, that frustration that I think a lot of actors hit at a certain point of wanting more control over your creativity and your career of like, geez, do I have to always just wait until somebody else casts me in something? Do I have to always just wait until somebody else writes a part for me kind of thing? Uh, so music was just really freeing to get into in my 20s as sort of a, this is a way to express myself. This is a way for me to make sure that people can hear my voice, even if I'm not cast in something. Uh, and over the years, it's really developed into, I, I, I have definitely plateaued in certain uh, levels in terms of like my technical performance ability. I'm a, I'm a four chord musician, you know, but there's a lot of music that you can write with, with four chords. You know, that's, that's a lot of the foundation of like, you know, the pop and folk and stuff that we all love so much. And uh, I, I feel really confident as a, as a writer is my saving grace is I've always, uh, I've been really lucky to have worked with a lot of people who have helped me uh, feel confident in my voice as a writer. And uh, in particular, now these days, I do a lot of commission songwriting and, and pandemic has been a really good time to kind of hunker down and continue to hone my voice. So I, what I lack sometimes on a bad day in confidence as a, an, an instrumentalist, I more than make up for with just loving to sing and feeling continued sort of uh, ability to express myself through my, my words and my ability to, to write songs for people and for myself. So it's a really exciting time to be moving forward with all that. Um, you say it's an, an exciting time in, <laughs> oh, in the, a global pan, global right? pandemic. <laughs> and we're, you know, both of us are, 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 are artists in our own, own right, right. Um, as great as the creativity is, there's also the, the bandwidth of empathy can be really over overwhelming and actually could act, if I know for me, if I'm not working my recovery program, I could be, I get really over overwhelmed where I, it doesn't look like I'm overwhelmed, but there's a lot of in, internal stuff that's going on where I'm really good at um, hiding it and, you know, putting on for for facades. And it does take me a lot longer than usual to get real with my emotions. So, um, I don't know, I, I'm sure you can relate as an artist, like how are you, how are you doing with your empathy budget during oh, this time? I, that's, I appreciate that question so much. Yeah. It's, it's something that I agree is like something that creative people in general really struggle with, like being so dang empathetic. And then certainly like just when everything is turned up to an 11 in terms of it feeling like the world is on fire, it can feel like a lot. Um, the, the big vibe of pandemic for me for sure has been about needing to prioritize self-care, like recognizing that it is just as much an essential thing. I, I love the, the, the use of your terminology, really making it a budget, like that there truly is in the same way as with our finances, we need to sometimes really get real with ourselves about like, no, you only have X number of dollars for X, Y, and Z funds in the same way with like the prioritization of self-care, uh, these last few months, especially it's just like, nope, Chloe, there really truly are only so many hours in a day, only so many 
ways that you can stretch yourself thin and how are you going to be able to keep on giving to others if you're not first trying to take care of yourself you can't keep setting yourself on fire to keep other people warm um and then the big part of that for sure for me with pandemic especially this is something that i've kind of struggled with all my life but like pandemic has really crystallized it is man i'm i'm really trying to get rid of survivor's guilt i'm really trying to move on from survivor's guilt i'm really trying to move mm. on from the empath in me meaning that you see a headline or you learn about someone who is struggling and immediately it's it's a kind of narcissism, isn't it? Because immediately it's it's basically about like you hear that someone else is struggling with something and it's crazy how my brain can operate in such a way as to make it almost then not about them as much more as it is about me. And like, oh man, I feel so bad that, well, the other people are struggling. I have a warm bed to sleep in or have a day job so that I can pay my bills, right? And like that's, it's so yeah. not helpful. It's such a waste of an emotion. It's such a useless emotion. I've been really trying to, to channel my inner empath more towards, uh, productivity and like, what do I do with those emotions as opposed to like, I'm realizing more than ever that like survivor's guilt is something that is such a useless emotion because it just stops me in my tracks. It just makes me sit and feel bad instead of doing anything for myself or anybody else. That, that's been quite a struggle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's definitely been true for me on how I'm handling my my em- empathy and in terms of like taking on too much and a lot of things just aren't, aren't my business. Yeah, It's not. And, and if you're as an, as an empath, empath, like sometimes my niceness can get me in trouble. Oh yeah. If that, sure. if that makes sense. Like why? Like, and it's like who being selective, being selective of who I'm nice with and oh. to and participating with it's like not everyone deserves my nice my niceness and I've been involved with like I don't know like um I call them black holes like or narcissistic mm. personalities or black holes or um, people where if you know the idea or the concept of a black a black hole like here's a black hole that just sucks sucks in everything from from the universe and there's nothing wrong with that they're, they're just being a, ba- a black hole that's just black holes do what black holes <laughs> they're just do, doing them. do best. Yep. Do, just doing their thing <laughs> and they're fantastic they're really fantastic and this is through my practice and in my own own recovery in that it's like you know um cupid flying into the the sun it's like the sun's great but it's like this uh, if i'm using my empathy to control or manage and fix and you know this time it'll be different with black hole hole type personalities or, or energies like i'm the one that gets killed and decimated like there's a footage NASA fo- uh, footage. Maybe I'll put this in the notes. Oh, it's cool. a really powerful Im- imagery. I'll send. I'll send it to you. Um, it's a footage of a star, and you know, fast forward time, a f- uh, time lapse video of a star. Um, and stars are really powerful them themselves, but black holes can destroy them. So this star was in this path, coming into this path. You see the star coming into this path of this black hole, and you see it uh, because of the gra- the gravitational force is so great. You see the um, the gas from the star like bleed out, and then the star goes into the black hole and just decimates decimates it. And it's like, yeah, that was pretty much a lot of the relationships that I was in. You know, I was this black, I was this bright bright star. I come across someone who. I thought was great, but it was really a black hole and just like be decimated. It's like, yeah, 
Oh my God. So that image I saw, I I recently saw it and that image has been really powerful for me with, if I'm coming, coming into like the vicinity of a black hole and I could like, you know, just navigate, navigate around it. But a lot of the times I didn't have that skill set or the know-how or the awareness like, Oh, I don't need to be here type type. I don't know. Have you ever had those type of experiences? Oh gosh. Yeah. This resonates with me a lot, dude. That, that, that hits real hard. The, it's so crazy how it's the kind of thing that you don't, I, anyway, speaking for my part, I, I can see that stuff so clearly now. And at the time it just, I couldn't imagine any other way out of it. I couldn't imagine any other way to be. I couldn't imagine any other way to interact with the people in my life. And it's so freeing and exhilarating once you're on the other side of it and, and have learned some things to look back on it and see it very clearly for what it was, which was that was a black hole. I was kind of getting sucked in. I was kind of just giving all of myself in the service of someone else such that then there was nothing left of me. It's really clear to see in hindsight, but at the time, man, I just had blinders on so much. And it's, it's really interesting how that energy of those black hole personalities can just suck you in, in such a way that like it, it sometimes even feels good at the time. I'm somebody who's really chronic about it's, it's nice to be needed, you know? And there's something about like the, that my empath side very often goes into the caretaking side. I don't know how chronic that is for you, but Mm -hmm. like it, it certainly can wrap me up a lot at, less so these days, but only because I have to be super deliberate about it of like, just because someone needs me or just because someone wants something from me or just because someone could benefit from someone that I could give them doesn't mean that I'm obligated to give. (laughs) And I really like your language of like, you know, not everybody deserves my niceness and it's okay for me to set a boundary. My big thing these days is like, it's so hard for me to set boundaries. And, you know, like it's, we've, (laughs) you and I practice some good boundary setting just today of like, Hey, what if we recorded (laughs) 10 minutes later? Like, that's the kind of thing that truly like, you know, once upon a time I would have had to like sit down and like sweat that out before even like, you know, starting a conversation with somebody about moving a time for something or or asking for something that I need. It's, it's crazy how easier it becomes the more you practice it. But at the time I I spent so many years just, you know, dealing with other stuff, you know, repression and drinking, but like it, 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 for that topic in particular to be very much just about when you're in it, you just can't even see any other way for for Mm -hmm. things to be. But then afterwards it's so clear what's going on. Yeah. Um, one of the challenges that I, I see in terms of healing, healing for the empath, culturally, it's so acceptable mm. where those, those traits like, you know, loyalty, giving, they're great traits, but how it's played out is very, there's, there's not, there's not a lot of, I think it's slowly getting, you know, the, the cultural acceptance of, of, you know, emotional, emotional boundaries in this in this con- con- content of like, well, we talked about it a little like in the pre in the pre interview about like consent, consent, yeah. consent, and boundaries, and and um, you know, I I'm just like reflecting back on my on my relationships and like I don't know, I see this like I just had this thought of like the type of, of relationships creative people get get into. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm speaking generally, I know for me, I'm speaking from my experience, but I have noticed, I have noticed the type of relationships that creative people get into are like volatile, chaotic, abusive. And, um, and it's like, 
then it goes into the art. Like I'm mm-hmm. great, like awesome. I've I've heard the breakup songs. I've heard <laughs> the, the awesome and fantastic. But at what cost? At like what at cost, what cost? Yeah. I don't uh, know. How how do you feel about that? It it hits me for sure. There's a buddy uh, with whom I've been trying to get into the artist's way. The Julia. Ooh, I was gonna say Julia Child. Ooh, Julia Cameron. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> oh, wouldn't you love to read a self help book by Julia Child? That sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, Julie Cameron's book, uh, The okay. Artist Way. Um, mm-hmm. I still have yet to make it through the entirety of it myself. I will fully confess that I'm a, I've, I've, I've made it like four weeks in before I, I give up. But um, one of the one of the reasons that I, I often in the past have found myself getting you know several weeks in and then like kind of feeling myself uh, back off is because I feel super called out by the shit that she writes about. <laughs> and I, I specifically remember the first time I tried to crack it. Um, there was a section where she talked about we as artists have been raised with a bad uh, program. We've been raised with a bad expectation to expect that our lives necessitate a certain amount of drama or pain or addiction or suffering in order to produce our art. And she writes about the the reality that is much less sexy, but much more sustainable, that it's possible for you to have a budget and a healthy lifestyle and relationships. And still like, that's almost like the, the more dedicated and more like, you know, uh, uh, sustainable certainly form of your art, right? It's like, I care so much about my art that I want to keep myself alive long enough to keep producing it. And I want to have more actual control over it instead of just having it all purge out of me when I I'm in a, a, a crazy headspace uh, of, mm-hmm. of emotions or addiction and not even able to like really control what I'm doing. It's just coming out of me. Uh, what if I like cared so much about it that again, like going back to the idea of budgeting, right? What if I cared so much about my art and my creativity that I scheduled time out for it in a very like, you know, boring, unsexy, but structured and regimented and reliable kind of way. What would that kind of life look like? And I got that far the first time I tried to read that book and I said, nope, 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 nope. I'm too, too uh, used to the narrative that like, if I'm not in pain, if I'm not hurting myself, then like, where else will my muse come from? And it's, it takes a long time to unwire that. And especially it's, it, you know, it's it, we've officially reached the point in the conversation. What I'm looking at my imaginary watch that I don't wear. Oh, I've made it a, a freckle past a hair, a clock before jumping on the feminist soapbox. Of of course, like so much of being an empath has to do too for women about like we're just supposed to be nice and we're just supposed to say what everybody expects us to say and we're supposed yeah. to look good while we're doing it and and everything that anybody ever asks of us we're supposed to say yes to and this of course falls up so much in relationships uh, with other people and of course crops up for uh, every female artists that, that I've ever collaborated with. There's always a conversation that comes up at some point of just like, man, we sure are creative. So in the first place, we're very like passionate and driven and like dedicated to our art. And then we're women. And so like we have all of this gendered shit in our heads programmed about like what it means to be a good girl and to be dedicated to your partner or your family or everybody else around you as opposed to taking care of yourself first. It's a lot. Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) We will get this into the part, part two, but it's time. Ah, It's time to play your song. The time has come. The time has come. Speaking of creativity channeling, I'm, I'm okay. You got to tell, we're going to play your song, Gemini. Mm -hmm. And um, tell us a little bit uh, about Gemini. 
Thank you so much for asking. I'm really proud of this one. I, uh, I do commission songwriting. It's something that I've always uh, enjoyed doing uh, for friends and family and that I've uh, now I, I love to work with clients on it as well. It's kind of a nice way to get to know a client. It's basically just that like, you know, I am available for writing songs for request, writing songs for a special occasion. So in the past, that's meant like, you know, some someone has a birthday coming up and they want to surprise them with a song. Sometimes it's just that you like do kind of a modified cover version of an existing song that is really special to someone one and you want to surprise them with. Um, in this instance, uh, just last weekend, actually, I uh, performed at a small backyard wedding. Uh, and uh, this is a perfect example of the my favorite kind of commission songwriting experience, which is just basically, you know, this is a song that I wrote specifically for these two beautiful people who are getting married. And it's just peppered all throughout with like sort of in jokes of theirs. And uh, they're, they're the sweetest, sweetest people whose uh, birthdays just happen to be a few days apart. They are like three days apart from being the exact same age. And they are uh, you know, of course, we lesbians be out here with our astrology. So being Gemini is very important to them. So this is a song that I wrote uh, for a wedding just last weekend. It's called Gemini and it's for Jan and Jess. And I uh, love them so much and was so thrilled to get to work with them. All right. So crew to the listeners. This is Gemini by Chloe Payne.
Welcome, everyone, to the second half of the show. And um, Chloe, you recently came out last fall. Mm-hmm. And so, and um, ev- everyone's coming out story is is um, different. And how, and then, rec- and so now we're in a pandemic. So that's an interesting <laughs> backdrop of you just came out and, and it's a pandemic. So how... <laughs> What what has what what led to your process in in coming out? Mm. Yeah, thank you for the chance to talk about that. Yeah, it's basically uh, yeah. So here we are in uh, October 2020. I I sort of started stutteringly, uh, you know, coming out of certain closets to certain people all throughout last summer, and then uh, yeah, like this October is a really special time for me, and so I uh, tried to make sure that like my my sort of final like publics, whatever, you know, social media, whatnot, talking to everybody far flung across this great nation, all the friends and fam kind of knew who I was as of like October of 2019 last year. So this is kind of a, this is really lovely to be getting to talk to you right now. I'm sort of celebrating that anniversary time and reflecting on this crazy year. Um, my, uh, my whole, uh, I, I'm right now in a period of (laughs) not being really, really repressed for the first time in a long, long time. I, uh, I grew up as, uh, the eldest of three siblings and did my best to just, uh, always be what everybody else needed me to be when I was a a youngster. And then I went off to college and thought to myself, okay, cool. I'm going off to college in Chicago and I'm going to be an actor and I'm going to like live on my own for the first time. And surely all this weird anxiety that I've kind of always felt, but never really known why is going to go away now. Mm. And Sure did not. And uh, in uh, in college, I met uh, the man that uh, became my best friend and the person that I uh, stayed in a relationship with for 13 years. And uh, I started to, um, several years ago, like in my early 30s, I started to have rumblings to myself through some other kind of personal development, health, uh, self-help conversations with friends and family. I started to kind of understand that the fact that I'm a lesbian was probably the thing that had always been simmering under the surface and that I'd just been trying to shove down, shove down, shove down. And uh, I spent a couple years uh, just so, so deep in the closet, (laughs) yeah, Mm. trying to, uh, I couldn't imagine uh, disappointing everybody. I felt like I was going to disappoint everybody. I felt like, uh, you know, this is, uh, the man that I was with, I thought I was going to marry. I, I converted to Catholicism and we moved from Chicago to Portland and, uh, we all love each other's families and 
and this is the person that I thought I was going to be able to convince myself to uh, make a life with. And um, I couldn't imagine uh, what this would do to him. I couldn't imagine what this would mean to everybody else in my life for me to kind of like do this whole 180. And um, it just got to the point where I, I, I never have experienced um, suicidal ideation, uh, but I, 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 had never been in a period before when it got to the point where I was saying to myself really regularly, I don't know how I can keep on doing this. And I also can't imagine saying the words that I need to say to the people that I need to say them to. I don't feel like I'm going to be able to survive that somehow. Like surely I will just not be alive on the other side of that. That's, that's the point when I was able to start saying to myself, mm, that neither of these things are, are sustainable then Chloe, like you've got option mm-hmm. a of not being able to, and option B of not being able to. So what are you going to do? And, um, so yeah, last summer was this whole, uh, really necessary, but really painful and messy and liberating and freeing and terrifying process of, uh, I had to kind of blow up the life that I'd had previously and leave the person that I was with and the home that we had built. And it was a big financial change. Of course, I'd never had my own finances before. We always just did that together. And it was a a marriage in all ways, but legal basically, you know, and having Mm. to take that, that life apart. And, um, it was, a uh, one of those periods of, of time when you, jump out and the universe opens the net for you. Like I, I was so grateful to have, um, some family to go sleep on a couch with and, uh, to, uh, you know, jump on Craigslist. And one of the first Craigslist ads that I found for a new place to live was this wonderful house where the ad was basically titled looking for a queer friendly housemate to join our house with a golden <laughs> retriever and a really bitchy cat. And I'm like, perfect, please. I, I remember that this, uh, oh. the house that I live in now, actually my roommate that, uh, that is on the other side of the wall, uh, I, I replied to the ad and what I said in my, in my response to the Craigslist ad, this is one of the first people, a new person that I came out to was I said, um, hi, I'd really like to live in your queer friendly house. I, um, I'm not straight, but I don't know exactly. Please. I just need a place to live. Like it was, it was a lot. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and then just in terms of the pandemic journey, like, you know, it, everything about last year was, uh, painful and messy, but also just liberating and exhilarating. And of course, as so often happens, it, once people kind of make it to the other side of their, their coming out, um, it's then like a whole new world in so many different ways. And I felt really, uh, empowered heading into 2020 of, um, man, this is going to be the time when like, I can get a new grasp on like my creativity creativity. I can imagine what I want to do with my financial goals moving forward. I was one of those people, one of those cliches at this point that we're all joking through 2020. I was one of those people heading into this year saying, man, 2020 is going to be my year. Everything's coming up Chloe in 2020. And now we're all in a pandemic. Uh, so I, it's, it's been really interesting to, I feel right now, like I have like so much to be grateful for. Like I'm constantly doing this reflection, especially just this being the first year kind of out of the closet and making a new life for myself. The number of times when I'm constantly looking back over my shoulder and saying, man, Chloe, you of 10 or 12 or 15 months ago could never have imagined this life for yourself, let alone the you of five or 10 years ago. Like, wow, how proud I am of you for having come so far. And at the same time, like that just feels very incongruent, of course, with the fact that that so much is so big and scary in the world. So it's, I, mm. I'm grateful for a lot. And I'm also just trying to give myself a and everybody else around me, a lot of, a lot of grace and a lot of patience of like, this is a scary time, but we all have a lot to be grateful for. Yeah. I was just thinking about Whitney Houston, who Mm. was gay. I did, I didn't know that. I had no, no idea. And it it was, um, little did I know that, um, 
was it one of her songs? I, I want to dance with somebody. Some of her songs <laughs> were for her her lover, her um, yeah. long time who who has then like come out like yeah we were we were secretly involved, uh-huh. and I'm reflecting on like you know w- Whitney battling addiction and, and whatnot, and it's like how can that not play a uh-huh. part in in the drugs and, and alcohol and the addiction of mm-hmm. not living your authentic truth and like you just couldn't oh yeah you, you just sure. you, you couldn't as a as a as a singer and I'm curious like during the times you, you knew you were a lesbian but you weren't out like how much of that was reflective in 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 your music Oh gosh. Yeah. I, I just, the, you know, the, it's, it's definitely the point at which to, to bring up all the, the problem drinking. Yeah. And like to, to have those, the people like Whitney in the culture that we can look at and be like, Oh gosh. Yeah. Like in hindsight, you can really see how a lot of maybe different addiction issues were playing into what was maybe going on below the surface. Mm -hmm. I just, I spent, uh, all of my childhood and like my teenage years, like just, like almost maybe trying to convince myself that I was asexual because like, Oh, I just don't feel anything for anybody. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. Oh, let's get back to work guys. Like I was just a workaholic. (laughs) It's just like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm stage managing and I'm acting and I'm in the choir and we have AP classes. Uh, I don't need to talk about dating. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, just to try not to think about it. Like everything was just always trying not to think about it. And so then going off to college, it's just more workaholic. And then, um, everything in my twenties was just about drinking. Everything in my twenties was just about like, I, I am surprised that I was even able to keep up as much like creativity as I ever was, uh, or like, you know, a a slip of a career as I ever was, because like, it was just, just, uh, just binge drinking and bar culture. And it's so messy to be in a society where that's considered to be so normal in so many ways to just like spend your twenties and your college experience, just blitzed out of your mind all the time. And, and, you know, I would black out and it would be so freaky to me that I had blacked out, but I would have people in my life who just like, you know, considered that to be normal and par for the course. It's just something that happens when you drink this way. And when you live this kind of lifestyle and it's just, it made it really easy to numb myself. It made it really easy to distract myself. And, um, such that um, I was singing, I was writing, I was occasionally uh, auditioning and and getting to do some theater. But just, man, a lot of my repression always took the form of control issues. A lot of, I, I, I have a lot of controlling tendencies and uh, I do a lot of pushing people away and deflecting uh, with excuses along the lines of like, no, you don't know how to do this. I'm the one who knows how to do this. Mm. I'm the one who has this mm-hmm. under control get away from me, get out of here. How dare you try to know me? (laughs) I don't appreciate you trying to be nice to me and know me and help me feel feelings about myself and get to know myself, get out of here. And, um, the drinking made it really easy to keep everybody at bay. And like, you know, I've, I've reconnected now with some friends and family that I really kept at arm's length during those years. And, uh, it, it, I don't think is any accident that the creativity that I was experiencing, the writing that I was able to do, I, you know, it's very similar to like the the things with the artist way I would get up to the edge of something creative and I would feel something that I couldn't control. I would feel like my, my words and my music 
even things in theater, like, you know, as an actor so often, you're just a conduit even for somebody else's words and for somebody else's emotion and somebody else's place in the story. Even that got to be too much. Like there was just so many years when I, I was saying out loud, I thought I was just quote unquote depressed. I was using the word depressed about myself a lot when I would talk occasionally to people about this. I would say, no, I just don't like listening to music right now or going to see shows or movies because mm. it makes me feel feelings and that makes me sad. Like I couldn't, I, there were so many years when like I, I legit, like I wasn't even listening to anything or experiencing anything as an audience member because it hurt too much. It was making me feel out of control. Mm -hmm. And, um, this past year then it's been no surprise in a lot of ways, but like, just like very freaky, (laughs) very, very kind of an out of body experience to like feel so much coming out and see so much coming out. And like, there are so many ways in which I feel in control of my narrative now because like I I'm writing about myself like this writing is is purely catharsis this writing is purely uh like all the things that I always thought that I wanted to sing and write and do but never really gave myself permission to uh and at the same time it feels wildly out of control like the the things that are coming up now just basically it's straight from the pages of my journal into my songs and that's really freeing but it's also really um kind of terrifying and like really challenging my controlling tendencies to like see these things that emerge from my pen or when I'm, when I'm just sitting vocalizing improving to myself. And then you look back at those pages or you listen back to that recording and you're like, Oh God, I didn't even know that that needed to come out of me. This is a lot, but it's, it's necessary. And I'm really grateful to be able to do it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, when we were, when we were pre during the pre-interview, I, I, you're um an elder elder millennial born in the in the mid the mid 80s the mid mid 80s yeah. i'm 34 yes yeah, so i was born in okay. 86 i i was born in 79 and um you know, you know people peep, peeps and that are coming out they're coming out during during this pandemic and you know what does it mean to come out in the 20, 21st century when we're social distancing or or were um self self quarantine quarantining if that's if that's um like a phrase and i'm just reflecting on my own experience like i identify as a demisexual mm-hmm. and for uh, grow, growing up being a teen girl puberty liking liking boys in high school and, and college like i didn't I never had a boyfriend didn't have mm-hmm. a boyfriend in college like you know some dating like stuff or drive-by stuff but nothing nothing where um I don't know if I gave off that vibe or maybe I, uh, um, I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was attracted to, to men, mm-hmm. but like in the hooking, hooking up what I saw from my peers, like not that scared me like that. Yeah. That was really, really intense for me. I remember there's this one person who was much older, older than me and I was 18 mm-hmm. and I remember getting birth control and we never had sex, but like preparing for it or, or whatnot. I remember getting birth control and it scared me like that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not ready for this. I'm 18. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, that, that ended and, and, um, making out with someone was fine, but then I would always get to this point. Like I, I could never like, just like cross, 
cross over. There was always felt like this invisible kind of wall or barrier. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I myself couldn't go all the way of like, what's wrong. So that's like the word that I was, the words that I was using in like, like in my, um, let's say I went to college in 97. So from 97 to 2002, it was like during that time, like what is going, what is going on? And at the time, um, demisexual wasn't even like a word. I think asexual was was coming out and then just how people thought about gay people, um, you know, for just to give an example, I grew up in San Jose. We're an hour south of San Francisco mm-hmm. and um, senior year, senior year in my senior year high school, we had the school newspaper and there was an ad for a gay prom. So, you know, I you hear about gay proms all the uh-huh. time, but this was like revolutionary in 1997 and it wasn't even at our school it was at it was at a I think it was probably at the Campbell Campbell Community Center or some community center in San Jose and there was an ad in our paper in our high school paper for this gay prom that wasn't even going to happen at our high school but just the fact that this ad was in our school paper like parents like lost their shit I just remember the adults losing their goddamn minds and um you know why was this ad it was it was just like like people were just and I didn't care like the student body was like like defending it um nothing happened just a bunch of adults like losing their mind but (laughs) but like just to give you yeah that was the impact just to give you a flavor a flavor of like how how people felt about gay youth during, during that time. So like no one was really come coming out. There was probably, I think one person that we kind of knew I'm, I don't know about it. I don't know if she was ever bullied. I don't remember seeing like gay kids being bullied. It probably happened. i just, just wasn't, wasn't aware, but, um, and then some, some people like, um, suspect, but I didn't know, I didn't know until like the high school reunion, like 20, like, um, 10 years later, like 10 years after we had our 10 year, um, reunion after 97. So 10 years after that. So that's when I went back and found out like some of, some of the classmates that were like, that they came out, they came out then, Mm. um, or maybe they came out sooner, but that's when I saw them at the reunion, they were like, um, yeah, I'm gay. And like, oh, okay. Like, it's like, like people, people came out like at, co- and during college time, like no one was coming out during, during high school time. Sure. Um, so that was like what was going on then. And so me, I wasn't like, that's all you had, like the categories. And, right. um, and I'm, I am not a fan. I've never been a fan of categories myself. Oh. And so, so, but it it was like, what, what, what is this? Like, I, I am attracted to men, but like the whole dynamics that's involved, like I was more and it, and, and this came out even more so when I was in, in, in recovery, like, you know, I would do searches or research and, you know, researching a, asexual and, mm-hmm. um, reading about that. And I'm, even though I'm not a fan of categories, I wanted to, um, it's it's helpful to know like what's what's yeah. out there, and so I'd read about asexual. I, I mean, I saw a docu document doc, documentary on asexualness, and and though I done I, I did identify with some of the aspects, um, it wasn't quite 
the the fit. And then I came across um, demisexual, and I found that through Urban Dictionary of mm-hmm. all places. So I'm reading the <laughs> definition. I'm reading the definition of demisexual, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, oh, this is my cat category. And in in my under in my understanding, and it makes sense for me. It's like I. I connect emotionally before physical a physical sexual attraction takes takes precedence. So, so even and then I do find pe- men attractive. Like I do find men like sexually attractive, but it's very fleeting. You know, mm-hmm. it, it does. It's not something that drives me to like, you know, get get with them in the courting process and, and, but the emotional bonds are really more stronger. So going back to what I was talking about earlier about being like sucked into a black hole, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, like, okay, when interacting with uh, narcissistic people, they emulate empathy, but they don't mm-hmm. feel empathy. So it's like, it, it, it throws me for a loop, like, oh, I got fooled, but but it's so real, like, but it's real, but it was fake, but it was, it was, it was like virtual reality empathy type. And that that just like fucks you up majorly. So, um, but then that's just like how, how I was, um, wired. So I, I just got to be really careful with my, um, with my interactions, but it was, it was good. It was just, it was finally freeing to, recognize or or find out like oh there's a whole whole community out there of like demi demisexuals and um we are and it, it is part of the lgbtq like spectrum and we have our own flag i'm like yay oh my god we have our own flag yeah, that's amazing and there's, nothing, there's nothing quite like that initial moment of just like yeah like when you first see the term or the thing that you really click with and just sort of that rush of excitement of just like, wait a second, there's a reason maybe that I feel this way. Or like, mm-hmm. maybe the reason that I feel this way isn't that there's something wrong. It's that there's actually like a, a definition. Like it's so crazy how limiting labels can be in some ways, but then like in some ways they really serve their purpose, which is just like a banner under us to identify uh, under which we can identify and a place to like start a conversation from which like, Oh, you feel this way. I feel that way too. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely wasn't like, you know, taking am I a lesbian quizzes on my laptop under the covers on the couch in the middle of the night for years and years. No, not at all. And like, you know, seeing definitions of like heteronormativity and the compulsively heterosexuality and being like, oh God, it's as if these people have been in my brain, but I didn't know that these were things I needed to talk about. And then, yeah, like you see a label like something like demisexuality, like, oh my gosh, like I didn't know anybody else felt this way. How did you get in my head? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's a really helpful purpose for a label to serve sometimes. Yes, uh, I found a podcast, um, you know, just trying to find demisexual content that's that's mm-hmm. out there. And I mean, this is another thing that we could talk about, like, you know, how how queer do you need to be to, oh. to be considered gay? And I, mm-hmm. I that's a barrier for me because like, who are you to tell me like how how gay I'm supposed to be to be to be gay? Mm-hmm. And it's like. <laughs> Seriously. I don't know. That's a personal identification and it's not my job to, you know, uh, late like or um, quantify right. or qualify another queer fellow 
Um, oh, but it's so easy for us to imagine those gatekeepers. Yeah, those imaginary <laughs> gatekeepers are like more powerful than any words of rationale I can tell myself. You know, I, I do. I it's it's very much a, a vain disservice for for me to have like you know the the surface level of the coming out conversation is all me getting to play this world's smallest violin, wax poetic for myself about like oh gosh, I was just so worried that I would disappoint other people, and mm-hmm. oh gosh, I just didn't want to ruin the life of this man that I was with. And those things are true, and those things are valid. But deep down, like. I, I have to be honest with myself about that. I know that the main thing that kept me in the closet for the period of time between figuring out, oh man, I think I might actually be a lesbian and that's what's always been wrong. The period of time between that and actually getting up the nerve to change my life, the big fear that was in my way was it's not worth it for me to try to go live that life because surely I'm not a quote unquote valid lesbian. If I'm coming out at 33, who does that? Nobody's (laughs) going to want to be with a person who like couldn't even figure this shit out about themselves until they were this ripe old stinky age of 33. I've never even had sex with a woman. Who's ever going to want to have sex with me? Like you just talk yourself Mm. up into all this gatekeeping rationale of like, what is valid or not valid about a queer journey. I felt for years, like my experience wasn't as it's the survivor's guilt was certainly coming back into it then too, of like, well, is something that like makes other people's queerness more quote unquote valid than mine. The fact that like, I haven't directly experienced certain types of like homophobia or like, you know, discrimination, like other people have had it so much worse than me was this Mm -hmm. quote unquote, like worse than me narrative that I have in my head. Like, no, I should just keep my head down. I'm relatively lucky. At least I know this about myself. I, it's not fair for me to like try to step into this space where surely I won't even be wanted or seen as valid. And that's just a real, that's a real head case, man. Like that it's in, it's been really liberating in this, in this year of being out then to just like, of course, there are so many of us who don't figure out things about ourselves until whatever part of adulthood, like there's never a too early or too late. There's never a time by which you're expected to have learned certain things about yourself. That's the whole journey that we're all on. You know, she says to herself now, having read many articles and shed many tears and held many other people's hands. But like, you know, that's, that's something that is waiting for all of us on the other side of trying to let go of those judgmental gatekeeping voices in our heads. It's like, once we're on the other side of it, we meet legit, like other people who have had the same experience and the same fears. It's just like, no, you didn't like wait too long or it didn't like take you too long to figure this out about yourself. It's just great that you're here now. And like part of, I feel like one of the only things that like everybody under the queer umbrella, regardless of their specific label has in common is this sort of turmoil and the difficulty and the time that it takes to continue to learn about oneself and to grapple with the fears that come along with that. And and specifically the fears about other people judging you or not taking you seriously. I feel like that's something that we can definitely all agree we have in common. (laughs) Yeah. Um, just going back to Debbie's sexual content, I found, um, I found there was this article on Medium that mm. that popped up and it talked about uh, demisexual and there's a podcast. I had a link for a podcast, and so this podcast is called Pillow Talk with Emma Austin. Mm. It's on my queue of things to listen listen to, but nice. there is an episode on demisexuality, episode twenty six. Um, titled Demisexuality is Weird, Sexual Attraction, <laughs> Dating, and My Only Fans Addiction. And then <laughs> here's the episode uh, synopsis. How, how do you feel sexual attraction? For us, it's rare. When it does happen, it's all about the emotional connection. This week, we talk about what it's like being demisexual, why it makes dating weird, and how it influences our porn choices. 
Hmm. We also talk about why we can't be swingers, even though we have the perfect living room mattress for it. Why, <laughs> why group why group hangs are, are better than dating and having sex without an emotional connection. Huh. Um, and then not every demisexual loves porn, but we do. Mm-hmm. And when we watch it, we usually go to adult time. And adult mm-hmm. time is hyper hyperlinked. Um, check it out for yourself. Use our discount code Love Emma to save twenty percent on your first thirty day membership. Nice and relevant links. And if I um I I use um, Apple Podcasts for my podcast, so if you're on there, um, these are hyperlinked. Um, but just go just go to just search Pillow Talk Emma Austin Pillow Talk M- Emma Austin, and so. These, yeah, these are, this is how I found her podcast through her nice. medium. So she talks about, am I, am I semi-demisexual? Best mm. porn for demisexuals. Bloopers make me horny. Mm-hmm. Uh, can a demisexual have lots of casual sex? Question mark. And how to date a demisexual. I'm like, oh, wow, these are really great mm. um, resources. So in terms of resources, it's just like, you know, I, uh, this was like a couple, couple of years ago, like, you know, thank God for Google, oh, you know, yeah. where I was Googling asexual and Googling demisexual. And this is how I found, found like, like the content. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, f- I don't know, for those who are listening and, and struggling with coming out, I know for me, I started just Googling, Googling searches. And for those who are listening, um, like I grew up in a household where, if we did come out gay, I think it would be, it would be okay. But I do remember like, you know, I grew up with alcoholic parents. So it's, so it's like the homophobia and the bigotry would come out more when they would, they would drink. So even though they said they were fine, there was still this under undercurrent of like still not being, being safe. So, you know, I kept those conversations not very public with, with my parents and, and in in recovery and working with queer queer youth affect, uh, affected by problem drinking, like in some situations, coming out is life or death. So sometimes mm-hmm. it is count countdown to eighteen. So mm-hmm. for the listeners who are in predicaments where coming out actually might cost you your your life, it might be good if you're going to do Google searches. Like if you have a trusted friend, search on their phones and their computer and not your own computer and phone where your um, adults in your life might um, break into your phone to see what what's going on. Like use a friend's phone to do those types of Google searches mm-hmm. um, and not your own phone. Mm-hmm. So um, just putting it out there as a, as a suggestion to keep yourself safe during, during this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, but like you know, I, when I was doing my searches, I was an adult. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, <laughs> I was adult, like already. Gra- I was much after college too. So of course, um, when I did my search, like I was physically safe to do to do to do those types of searches and just like find what my what my category is. Right. But I also find categories like limiting at at the same. At the same time, like, how are you like navigating barriers, cultural barriers, and your own barriers? 
Right. Yeah. Cause like at a certain point, like the labels just feel so much more like they are for the sake of other people to like be able to put you in a box. Like, so it feels so much less like we are all like, you know, just humans and all like, as part of our wanting to connect with each other, we are interested in like, just knowing like the different banners under which we all align so that we can have community and support each other. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason we want to know your labels. No, like so much more often of the time, it feels much more like, so what are you anyway? (laughs) And like, can I flirt with you or not? Do you want want to fuck me or not kind of conversations. <laughs> and just, you know, I, I know personally I am gravitating. Uh, I have always gravitated most towards the the term lesbian for myself, simply because that at least is the way for me to communicate the strongest thing that I need to communicate, which is not being interested in men. No men of any nature need apply. Uh, but like, you know, there's so much more when it comes to being sapphic, when it comes to loving women, you know, there are non-binary lesbians. There are lesbians who use he, him pronouns or different types of pronouns. There are trans women and there are some lesbians who have problems with considering whether or not trans women are lesbians, which is fucking tragic that there would be people who feel that way. So like, there's a lot, like labels can have so much just like micro politicking and micro policing, uh, to kind of like break down underneath it. It's, 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 I, I have found the, the barriers to be, um, I don't ever want labels to get to the point in my life where it's, only people who identify under a certain label are then welcome under my umbrella and can be part of my club. I I consider it to be really important that like all of us can advocate for each other and that like advocating for each other is like, there's surely enough goodwill to go around, right? There's surely enough patience and loving kindness and support to go around that like, you know, it's, it's, you learn something about like the friends that are in your circle or the people who are sort of on the peripheral of your friendships when, you know, the, what was maybe the most recent time I, uh, bisexuality awareness, uh, week was, was recently. And, you know, I was, I was doing some, uh, stuff on social media to support that cause. And it's always a little enlightening, isn't it? When somebody sort of on the (laughs) peripheral of your, of your circle pipes up like, well, you're not bisexual. So why do you care? Or you're not non-binary. So why do you care? And it's like, we all just need to care about each other, man. Like you, you can't use the fact that I identify as lesbian to mean that like, so what I should only be sitting with the other lesbians at recess. Like we all need to, that's just so childish it's such a game like we all need to be able to support each other mm-hmm. yeah i do i do see the the in the infighting actually mm-hmm. does more more harm than trying to like be unif as one unified unified mm-hmm. community and i do see i do see the infight fighting this is what i see like on 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 social media like the infighting being used as um uh, infighting being used as a weaponized weapon to keep you guys like distracted and keep fighting while you know billionaires keep fucking you over but like exactly. you know and it doesn't take much this was like so so <laughs> like blows my mind it's like i'm like wow crew it doesn't really take much for you to get emotional and and mm-hmm. triggered and and like that's what happens like that's what like they're i i, I don't know it's like so I mean, not to be like conspiratorial, but it's like, you know, oh, I see it what I see. It's My like, tinfoil hat is on. <laughs> it's like, it, you know, it, and this brings into a larger conversation of like, you know, access, access to recovery, access to resources where you're working on your trauma. So when some, if you're working on your trauma and you're an activist, here's another thing that it, um, I'm, I am an adult adult child in the literature, the recovery literature that I do read, like that activism is an expression 
of those affected by trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, uh, some uh, summarizing. And so if you're not aware, aware of that and you're doing your activism and you're, you know, on your social media and easily getting triggered by a certain party that is anti-gay or, or whatnot. And it's like, okay, I, am I arguing with the person? And instead of taking a moment, it's like, again, emotional, triggered and reactionary. Of, of what? Like you're arguing, arguing with a bot. I, I don't know if this is a real person and who gives a fuck? Like yeah, who gives about this bot me. tweet? Yeah. Like I need to try to take on single-handedly <laughs> the mantle, the task, the Herculean effort of like converting every troll who ever crawled out from under a bridge. Like there's not mm-hmm. enough reasoned arguments or witty retorts existing. There simply are not. So yeah. Like where do you draw the line? <laughs> yeah, And it's just, I love that point about it just being so much more about distraction. Cause of course too, like, you know, I already stepped briefly. L- let me hop from the uh, feminist uh, soapbox that I was on earlier. Hop a quick hop, skip and a jump <laughs> over to the anti-capitalist socialist uh, soapbox like it's so much all of just about like trying to convince us that you know neoliberalism having so much to do with just like the things that you purchase saying a lot about you and like speaking to your the things that are important about you and that you believe in and you know the way that you make the world a better place is based on how you spend your money and how you save your money and where your money goes and the, the companies that you support and companies are people like it's all just such a distraction like we are not supposed to be out here trying to like convert trolls out of their shitty beliefs we're not supposed to be out here just like following different trending hashtags of like who said what shitty thing. We're not supposed to be out here trying to act as if money that we spend, like, you know, it's not up to me to like save every local small business that is suffering like Mm -hmm. capitalism. It's, it's, we all need to, they, they want us to be distracted by those smaller efforts so that we don't look at the bigger problems of the things that need to change. And they are very happy when we're distracted. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking about, um, J.K. Rowling, and I, I didn't read her Ooh. manifesto on, like, trans, her anti-trans rant, of, like, 3,000, it's like 3,500 words. I'm like, that's a lot of hate. That's a lot. <laughs> that's you a worked lot. hard on that, Joanne. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of hate right now. That's all I need, need to know. And plus, it's like, you know, as an empath, to read that shit and take it, like, mm-hmm. now I'm investing time and putting time into reading her manifesto and um it got a lot of people upset awesome awesome fantastic but again <laughs> like why maybe this is coming from a place a place of, of some of the privilege that I have and yes I do have some some privilege but at the same time it's like why not like how how's this for a mental exercise and this took me this took me years years mm-hmm. to even get to this point and now I'm actually practicing it like walk the earth as if you do have privilege privilege. So if I'm in a room with like majority, it's, you know, uh, white recovery spaces or or the dominant culture. And and I've been navigating these spaces since, since forever, Mm. since, since forever, a code switching, like, yeah, I get, I get that. But now I'm kind of, I'm like, you know, doing behaviors where, um, walk around the earth as if you do have white privilege. And not mm-hmm. like using it as like in a negative way, but just using it using it in a way like no one can take away my seat. Mm-hmm. No one can take away my seat. Not your attitude or whatever. Just like no, I'm I'm gonna stay stay here. And it's interesting practicing those those that attitude in in the recovery spaces because mm-hmm. in the twelve step 
recovery community, like we're anonymous, we're, we're equal, awesome, fantastic. But in practice, that's not always, that's not what always happens. Like I have seen racism in the rooms. I have seen, um, elitism in the rooms and I've been calling out people on their, on their bullshit, or I will act in a way where I was like, you're not, you're not, you're not scaring me with this, with this email. Like I would get an email, be like, blah, 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 blah. And for a second, I do like, like, oh my God, I did something bad. Like as a person of color in service and, and you know, this, this happens. But then again, it's like, how important is this? Like how important is this to stand strong and sit in the room and not quit my service position? Yeah. And not be intimidated or and by the passive aggressiveness, like the passive aggressive intimida- uh, intimidation yeah. where, and it's comical. Like I see this yeah. in the outside world, but in the recovery world, like, you know, when I see racism in the recovery world, it's almost comical. Mm. It, like, really, you're going to do your, your superior white privilege in an anonymous program where no one gives a shit and you're trying to be popular in an anonymous program? Like, that's sad. Seriously. How sad is your life? And it's so <laughs> no one, easy. No. Can yet you like you step back from it and like you practice those muscles enough to where your skin is thick enough that you can see that objectively for what it is. And it is just comical. It's so much just like um uh what uh peacocking. It's so much just mm. like what are you trying to like be so arrogant about right now? What are you so threatened by? It's uh, the 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 so much of like my 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 youth, my childhood, my teenage years, like not understanding why I felt so uncomfortable around men, but like, didn't feel like I could let myself be close to women because, ah, feelings, uh, just work, 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 Chloe, distract yourself. The, I, part of being an empath and being a, a female, certainly like, you know, you just get that messaging from the society that is, you're supposed to be a nice girl and nice girls are supposed to like want a certain kind of attention from men and a certain kind of attention from men is flattering. And like, you know, the male ego needs to be massaged in such and such away and like we're all just supposed to be women are in service of men in so many ways is the messaging that we get and it never like I I never felt like I had permission as a young person to say no to things that men were asking of me but it made me so uh, upset inside and I felt so much resentment that then I was just getting really bitter and really controlling in so many ways I didn't like who I was when I was around men in general certainly specific kinds of men and in these last couple years it's been blowing my mind to have the opportunity to step back from that enough to say to, to see just objectively I can say no to anything I want anytime I want. And it might hurt this man's feelings and I don't have to give any fucks at all. This man's feelings are not my responsibility. I am not responsible for massaging the ego of, or sparing the feelings of this person who's asking me to do something that I don't want to do, or who's giving me attention that I don't want. And it's, it's crazy how long it takes us to, to recognize that and how much work it, it's, it's been blowing my mind these years to realize the, the actual dedicated work of, I love how you talk about it being, yeah, like the practice of recovery. Like these are things that like, if you don't use it, then you lose it. And it's, it's a constant reminder for me. Yeah. I'm just going back to JK Rowling and her hateful, hateful manifesto. Like I, I, I didn't read it and I don't need, I don't, to me, I don't need to read it. Like Mm -hmm. three, 3000 words of hate is like plenty. I know where you stand, but then I'm thinking like from the standpoint of JK Rowling, it's like, how much time do you have <sighs> in your life? You're a billionaire. Mm-hmm. You're a fucking billionaire. Like I've seen her house. It's like three stories. Like I think it's bigger than Martha Stewart's like mansion house, mansion house. Like, was it real? 
Uh, okay, another conspiracy. Like I, <laughs> I think, I think. Talk about gatekeepers. Like I think, pe- someone, probably the same people who run the pedophile ring, was like, yeah, we'll we'll publish your book, but mm-hmm. you owe us. Uh, Fifteen years from now, you need to be homophobic and hate trans people. And J.K. was like, what? Really? Like I don't know. And she and she's like, we, and they're like, you want the billion dollars? This is what you need to do. Mm. like it's so it's like it's 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 because maybe i might be wrong i might be wrong but it's like the timing that of explanation it. would make just as much sense as any other explanation yeah like, the timing <laughs> of it is just so fucking bizarre it's like if i'm Seriously. a billionaire i don't give a fuck who yep. you fuck i was like yeah. i have a billion dollars <laughs> Who cares? Because, like, that's the thing. The timing (laughs) of it was the most shocking thing about that fucking J.K. Rowling scandal of just, like, listen, there is so much else going on right now. There are so many causes and voices and ideas more worthy of your time. And you have such a platform. You have so many eyeballs on you. And there are so many people who are so dedicated to you and your work. This is what you want to do with that attention? This is what you want to do with that? And it's it's just like heading into the fucking political season. Of just like, I love your mindset of just like, what's that? Like JK Rowling wrote like 3000 words and I can get like the gist of it just from glancing at the headline. So I don't need to put myself through all that. The same thing heading into this election. We all know the most important thing is just to try to make sure that Trump won't be president. The most important thing is to vote any direction other than Trump. We just need to vote for Biden. It's just how it needs to go. And so why do I have so many people in my life who are putting themselves through the agony of sitting through a three hour debate? And reading, keeping up on every single piece of news headline throughout a 24-hour news cycle. Like, again, talk about, yeah, the theater of distraction, the spectacle that is just trying to keep us distracted and infighting and tired enough that we don't do the things that we actually need to do. Hey, instead of sitting through, like, every piece of agony that the upcoming election cycle might put you through take a bubble bath at the end of the night when you need to and take five minutes to catch up on the headlines the next day and you'll be just as informed and you wouldn't have given yourself an aneurysm of stress the night before and you'll still like be informed enough to know what you need to do. We know that we need to vote for Biden. We know that we need to not ever give the Harry Potter complex any more money. And this is coming from a person, I have a Harry Potter tattoo. The books used to mean a great deal to me. Some of the first (laughs) fan fiction that made me understand some very important things about myself featured Hermione Granger and Ginny Weasley. it's all, it's all fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Like we, we, we know that we just need to not support the bad things and we don't need to put ourselves through every single piece of agony <laughs> exposure therapy style to, to know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And on that, on that note, what's next? What's next for Chloe? <laughs> <laughs> Well, fan fiction, just jumping off on that platform. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I, uh, this, uh, my, my heading into 2020, the, the couple of specific goals that I had for myself were, I think that this is the time of like, maybe I'm not going to have a day job anymore at some point in the future. And I'm going to get to a point where I can really actually support myself with my creativity, whatever that would mean. I'm still like really doing a lot of that soul searching of like, what exactly does it mean to like try to, what do I consider a professional actor or artist or musician or a creative person to be that's constantly fluctuating. But, you know, at the beginning of the year, it was very much like I aspire to pay my bills with my art. And uh, then the pandemic hit. And I'm really, really grateful that I still have my my day job that can help me work remotely and stay safe. So uh, the, the goal is fluxing a little bit more into just if I can stay safe and help other people stay safe, if I can take care of myself and help other people take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And if my art, if I could have the 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 
feeble, the humble hope, the, the lofty aspiration of just having my art mean something to other people and help. I, I just consider everything to be about connections. I feel, you know, we're all on this freaking planet alone and we're all going to die alone one day. And instead of that being such a scary thing, it can just mean that we can all turn to each other for the connections that we need when they need them. Right. So I just feel like art and creativity, especially now that like, man, I'm just jonesing so hard for theater. I'm just jonesing so hard for all of us to be able to be sweaty actors, rubbing our bodies against each other and like <laughs> having BO in like a tiny little black box rehearsal studio. Right. I miss singing with people. I miss being in an audience. I miss performing for an audience. We, we are so lacking in those things. I feel like the, the biggest thing that I can do right now, the biggest thing that so many of us can do is just like exactly what you're doing with the podcast, man. Like what can we be doing remotely? What can we be creating from where we are instead of waiting until some future maybe date when we'll, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be in these circumstances. And so we no. would be doing ourselves a real disservice to wait. God knows how long, like it's really empowering to be able to focus on what we can do right now. So for me professionally, creatively, that's definitely just looking like writing as much music as I can. Um, everyone is cordially invited to come be my friend on YouTube is my favorite place right now. I sing songs in my bedroom and I have a lot of fun doing it. I, I really get a lot out of this, this time of being able to just like take my art very inward and, uh, you know, I can write commission songs from anywhere, uh, that I have a laptop. So anybody who's, uh, you know, got a special thing coming up or want to make somebody's day with some kind of, uh, special song customized for whatever's going on in your life. I, it, it means a lot to me to be able to do that for people. I feel like it's a small way that I can be of some service. Oh, thank you. Oh, Thanks gosh, for yeah. doing that. And, and dude, thank you for your podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally edging in like your wonderful professional, like starting to close this out by just saying like the, the work that you're doing is really important. Podcasts mean a lot to me. It's, it's always been, you know, I, I go on long walks or I, I work out and I have a little voice in my ear of whoever I'm listening to. And I feel a little bit less alone. We're all, we're all just like cast across this far flung globe, trying to talk to each other and stay connected as best as we can. So vehicles like this mean a lot. Cool. Yeah. And we will put your contact information on the um, show notes and Woo. and people could find me on vcomedy.com if you like this podcast um, give it five stars subscribe okay. on apple Podcasts, spotify anchor i am on anchor you can be a monthly subscriber for a dollar or for mm -hmm. four dollars but hey the starting the starting rate is a dollar a dollar a month is a deal and um, shout out to my first subscriber, uh, Justin Kaiser. Thank you, Justin, for being a um, monthly supporter for the Woo! podcast. And I'm on Instagram, Porous Podcast, and V also on Instagram, V Porous, V E E P O R R A S. Again, my website, uh, vcomedy.com, V E E C O M E D Y.com. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Chloe, for being on the podcast. Thank you, Veronica, for having a great podcast. You're the best. Everybody take care of, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. All right. Have a good one. 